This podcast is brought to you by The Empowerment Project. Research proves that empowerment self-defense training makes you safer, period. I want you to have a great self-defense toolkit so you can create strong boundaries, speak with confidence, and take up all the space that you deserve in the world. We'll hear stories from survivors and find out what worked for them and why. We'll interview leaders in the field and talk about tips, concepts, and really easy things that you could do to make yourself safer and interrupt the cycle of violence. I've taught self-defense classes for over 30 years, and I promise to teach you everything I know. Ultimately, I'm going to want you to get some in-person training, but a great empowerment self-defense class is more than just the physical skills. The list of things I want to teach you is endless, so let's get to it. My name is Sylvia Smart, and welcome to The Empowerment Project. Hello, listeners, and welcome. You know, if we're going to talk about empowerment self-defense, which is what we talk about, we have to talk about denial. Listeners, denial is not just a river in Africa. Let's break it down. Something I hear regularly when talking with survivors of sexual assault and survivors of other types of relational violence is that the survivor had a funny feeling something was wrong right before whatever the thing was happened, but then they doubted themselves or they rationalized or minimized their intuition. This is called denial. I hear this from other empowerment self-defense instructors too, by the way. Their students say the same thing. I had a funny feeling something was wrong, but I ignored it. Denial can put us at risk. And because of that, breaking through denial in all the different ways it manifests in our lives keeps us safer, period. Looking at and talking about denial is directly connected to empowerment self-defense and to our safety as we walk through the world. So let me explain. I'm gonna start here. A couple of months ago, I participated in an interactive active shooter training out at the Portland FBI headquarters. It was amazing, by the way. It was really interesting and helpful. The special agent who led the training told us that people ask him all the time something like this. Doesn't going through a training like this make you more paranoid? And I really loved his answer. I get the same questions about both my active shooter trainings and my empowerment self-defense classes, and I give the same answer that he did. So to remind you, here's the question. Won't participation in this workshop make me more fearful than I already am? And here's what he said. No, no, it will not. Paranoia is what happens when you don't know what's going on. When you don't have information, your mind makes up stories, most of them scary or scarier than the reality. So having information, having a plan and being prepared empowers you. Like I said, I have fielded this exact same question millions of times, and I'm sure my colleagues all have as well. Something like, my daughter's already scared. I don't want to make her go to this class and get even more frightened. Or I once took a self-defense class and left more scared than I was when I got there. Why would I do that again? If we're talking about empowerment self-defense, this thinking is just 
to be honest, it's flat out wrong. And I want to tell you why. For sure, there are some classes out there called, quote, self-defense, which participants do indeed leave feeling more scared than they went in. And I know this because, yes, many of my students have shared their experiences with me, for one thing, but also I've actually gone to some of these classes just to check them out because I could hardly believe it. Like, really? And each time I was horrified to see the participants leaving scared and talking about what new locks they needed to buy or where they couldn't go anymore or questioning whether they should ever stay alone in their homes anymore or go out walking after dark. But these classes are not empowerment self-defense classes and there is a huge difference. If you haven't yet, go back and listen to episode number 16 of this podcast, The Empowerment Podcast by Naga. It's an interview with Martha Thompson, who's an amazing and wise empowerment self-defense instructor. And she and I are discussing the different types of self-defense classes and what puts the empowerment into the empowerment of empowerment self-defense classes and that model. It's the only kind of self-defense class I ever want you to take, period. Empowerment self-defense, which we can also refer to as ESD, ESD, empowerment self-defense, gives you information, it gets you prepared, it teaches you skills, it gives you choices, and helps you make plans for all sorts of situations. It's empowering. Having more choices and more information more skills and tools in your toolkit is empowering. Having fewer choices, living with more limits, feeling like you're incapable, having less information is disempowering. So let me say that again. Less information and fewer choices is disempowering. Having more choices and more information and more skills is empowering. ESD classes are all about life skills, just like CPR, first aid training, and fire drills. As a quick example, you and I want our kids to know how to swim when they're around water so they stay safe and they aren't afraid when they're at the ocean or by a lake or in a pool. Well, dear listener, I want you and your kids and everyone that you know to have ESD training so you can stay safe and not be afraid as you're going about your life and interacting with all the people in the world, which we do on a daily basis. But I'm digressing, so let me just wrap this little piece up with, you will not leave an empowerment self-defense class more afraid than you were when you went in. You will leave stronger and bolder and more confident. You will have options and choices and skills and tools. This is the exact opposite of leaving more fearful and more paranoid and more scared. Empowerment self-defense is about embracing your power and the freedom that comes with that. So back to denial. What is it? Plain and simple, the Oxford Dictionary says it clearly. Denial is a psychological process in which an individual refuses to accept an aspect of reality despite robust evidence of this reality. We're going to talk about denial from a couple of different perspectives. So here's another way to think about it. Have you ever heard of Brene Brown? 
If you haven't read any of her books, start soon. You'll be very glad you did. There uh, is a link to her and her books in the description to this episode. In her book, Rising Strong, Brene Brown talks about denial like this. I'm going to quote, the opposite of recognizing that we're feeling something is denying our emotions. The opposite of being curious is disengaging. When we deny our stories and disengage from tough emotions, they don't go away. Instead, they own us. They define us. Our job is not to, de- to deny the story, but to defy the ending, to rise strong, recognize our story, and rumble with the truth until we get to a place where we think, yes, this is what happened. And this is me, Sylvia, I'm going to add, this is what is happening right now. She goes on to say, this is my truth, and I will choose how this story ends. I love that. I will choose how this story ends. That's pretty cool. Uh, There's a Nigerian-American former NFL football player who's now a sports commentator. His name is Emmanuel Acho. And he has a really funny, really funny explanation of denial. Um, He spells it out D-E-N-I-A-L stands for don't even know I am lying. That's his take on denial. What started me thinking about this topic now was a podcast episode of The Assignment with Audie Cornish. In this particular episode, Audie interviews Catherine Schweit, who is the former FBI agent who developed the active shooter training program for the FBI. She and host Cornish, among other things, have a really great discussion about denial. So please listen. It's a great episode, and they cover a lot in just 34 minutes, and not just about denial, just about the whole development of the training and about active shooter training in general and how it is playing out today in our society and kids and all sorts of things. But, um, of course, I link you to it in the description of this episode. So check it out. I want to tell you a story that helps illustrate what we're talking about here. In his book, Protecting the Gift, Gavin DeBecker shares a story about the consequences of denial from a safety risk perspective, which is relevant here to us in our discussion. Gavin DeBecker writes a lot about safety and fear and denial. And of course, you can find a link um, to him and to this particular book in the episode description. There are lots of links up there, by the way, this time. So check them all out. In this particular story um, that he uses to illustrate denial, he talks about an adult daughter who lived with two other roommates. One of the roommates had a boyfriend who set off all sorts of red flags for Blair, who's the heroine of our story. She described behaviors like controlling emotional instability with bouts of anger, and she described threats. Blair was scared of him and told her mom, Janet. Things got worse and worse 
and Blair's roommates refused to take the red flag seriously and actually turned the whole thing into a joke, which is something that happens with denial. Blair's mom, Janet, though, was thinking this was pretty serious, and she took Blair's fear seriously, and she reached out to Blair's roommate's parents to share her concern, and she was met with the same denial. In fact, she and Blair were made out to be the cause of the problem. Interesting. But that can be a real result of denial. If I can blame someone else for what I don't want to feel, I don't have to question the story I'm telling myself to make the uncomfortable feelings disappear. Well, the story goes on, and one day, Blair just got this huge feeling that something was really wrong. She went into high alert. Her body and intuition, all the signs that we talk about, were telling her, something's going on, pay attention. She had a really intense fear or a premonition that something terrible was going to happen. Her roommates, who continued to not want to see these red flags in this person's behavior, continued to claim she was overreacting, she was being overly dramatic, and to kind of poke fun at her. So I'm going to tell you what happened next, like how this story ends. But first, let's dive into the denial that the roommates and their parents have in the face of these bright red flags that are waving in their faces. So remember, the boyfriend is exhibiting aggression, anger, hostility, control, and actual threats. Be very clear. This is stuff to pay attention to. There are lots of reasons, though, for living in denial, for having denial, for having it be part of our lives. Fear and pain and past experience and shame and socialization can all make denial our go-to response. When we're young, denial can be an emotional coping skill that helps us survive. Like, say, for example, things are happening to me that are out of my control that feel hurtful and painful and maybe scary. But if I put my head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend it's not happening, I can exert some semblance of control over my life. I can feel better even just for a short time, maybe for a long time, depending on how good I get at keeping my head in the sand. So it's an actual skill that we use when we're kids. When scary and frightening things happen to me when I'm a kid that I have no power to change, I can cope by pushing those feelings down and pushing them away. And I can make them fade or maybe even vanish, again, even just for a little while. And then for that moment, I can feel the wash of relief that comes from feeling safer. However... Fast forward a few years into adulthood, and as adults, we can get stuck in this place of using denial to cope with the hard and scary feelings like pain and grief and fear, discomfort, shame. It can become our default. And denial, when we use it as a coping skill as an adult, and here's where the empowerment self-defense comes in, It puts us at risk. Let me say that again. Denial 
puts us at risk. Denial immobilizes us. The process goes something like this. Oops, here comes the feeling. I don't want to feel like I'm uncomfortable. I'm awkward. I'm scared. Red flags are waving. And then the second thing I do, okay, I don't like that. I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to push it down. I'm going to put my head in the sand. I'm going to turn away. I'm going to pretend it's not happening. I'm going to ignore it. Then, phew, that's gone. And I can just pretend it never happened. I can just pretend it's not happening right now. Repeat as needed whenever those red flags wave. Well, if that's the process, what if the hard feeling, the challenging feeling, the negative feeling, the one that's uncomfortable for me to feel, what if it's coming from my body's warning system? What if something is really wrong? What if the person is crossing our boundaries or disrespecting us or making us feel uncomfortable by their behavior? What if there's an actual physical threat and we're missing the signs because we're so determined to ignore what we're feeling or because we never learned another way to cope? My intuition, my body, is yelling at me at the top of its lungs that something's wrong and I'm ignoring it. That is denial. And that, dear listener, puts us at risk. So I wanted to tell you a real life example. So I'm going to tell you another story. I was taking classes at a community college in my early 20s and my professor was overly friendly with me right from the very beginning. They had me hang back after class. They gave me more attention than the other students, and they asked me lots of inappropriate questions, which I somehow managed to field without giving too much away. I clearly remember feeling weird and so creepy. And to make this more complicated, which is how it works in real life, by the way. It's never cut and dry. It's never black and white. It's more often than not very complicated. My professor had a disability, and I didn't want to seem judgmental or shallow or un-PC. And also, they had power over me, and I wanted a good grade. So these were all things that complicated it, but complications like that happen all the time in real life. So that's part of what makes disentangling this stuff so challenging and so hard. As you know, we usually know the person causing us to feel the red flags and these feelings and or they have some sort of power over us. Most of the time when we're assaulted, it's someone we know and we're familiar with. And I know you know this, but it bears repeating. Stranger danger does happen, but most of the time, most of the time it's someone we know or sort of know, like the friend of a friend or a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Back to the scenario, my entire skill set at that time for dealing with the situation included one thing and one thing only, you guessed it, denial. I pretended like this wasn't happening and I just tried to manage my way through the discomfort of what was happening without ever really admitting that anything was actually happening. So it was like happening, I was pretending it wasn't happening, but I was managing what was happening while pretending it wasn't happening. (laughs) Like this stuff can make you feel really confused. 
When the feelings did creep in, I did all the typical things that folks in denial do. I rationalized. Oh, I said to myself, I must have misunderstood. This can't really be happening. A professor would never do this to a student, right? Or I minimized. It's not that bad, I said to myself. I must be overreacting. Or I made excuses. My professor communicates differently, and I need to be more inclusive, more understanding, go out of my way to be cool. Chill out. Chill out, Sylvia. Chill out. I argued against myself to excuse and justify and refuse to see what was actually happening because I didn't know what else to do. This was my default at the time. The behavior continued, of course, and it ratcheted up. It escalated. Here I was in denial, and the stakes were getting higher. The questions racier, the attention more obvious, the requests more uncomfortable. And at the end of the term, the whole class went out together to a bar to celebrate. There was drinking involved and lots of dancing and really loud music. I remember it being really fun. But as the night went on, it got later and later, and I kept drinking, which is a piece of what happened next. My professor offered me a ride home, and yes, despite all the warning signs, I accepted the offer. I know, I know. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and by the way... When we drink and use, our inhibitions are lowered. Fact. And this often leads us to make decisions we would never make when we were sober in the light of day. We pulled up in front of my house, and before I could get out of the car, my professor literally lunged at me, grabbed hold of me, and started kissing and basically mauling me. Okay, deep breath. And let's stop for a minute and talk about victim blaming. We do not do that here. We are all doing our best. Yes, I sensed all sorts of red flags. Yes, I ignored all of them. And yes, I got assaulted. The fact that I was in denial absolutely does not mean this lunging and mauling and holding me down was my fault. The perpetrator, the person causing the harm, is always to blame. The moment I made my wishes clear and shouted, no, get off me, that was the moment the entire thing should have ended. Well, and let's also talk about consent. I had not consented to anything but a ride home. That was it. Empowerment, self-defense, and this podcast are all about helping us learn and grow from today forward, from right where we are. Those of us who have survived assault are not to blame. There is no victim blaming here. And by the way, if you haven't listened to episode number 17 of the Empowerment Podcast by Naga, give it a listen. Catherine White, an ESD instructor, and I talk about victim blaming and why this really awful paradigm exists in our culture. Speaking of Catherine, by the way, she wrote a really good blog last year about denial, and I have a link to it for you. Yes, in the episode notes of this podcast. I told you lots of links this time. And go find episode number 17 of this podcast and check it out about victim blaming. So yeah, no victim blaming here. But uh, hopefully my story can illustrate for you how denial of reality puts us at risk. 
I'm going to tell you what happened next, but first let's shift this story and imagine I had other tools besides denial. Like what if when I first had a funny feeling, I took a deep breath and noticed it fully? What if I had accepted the reality of what was actually happening? What if I had been able to admit to myself that this behavior was inappropriate and downright lecherous? What if I'd been able to speak up immediately and say something like, hey, you're asking me too many personal questions. That makes me uncomfortable. Stop it. Or you're my professor. This doesn't feel right to me. Stop it. And then what if I had steered clear, reported what is happening, talked to my other classmates, told another professor, gone to the department head, gone to my advisor. For sure, I wouldn't have found myself in that car late at night drunk. And for sure, I might have made the world safer for the next round of students. And the next. But playing out this alternative scenario hinges on one thing. Feeling the feelings, no matter how uncomfortable they make me, and admitting the reality of what is actually happening. Denial puts us at risk, period. So what happened next? There I am, I wanted to let you know the end of the story, right? There I am, I'm being pushed down, I'm being squished and grope. I started yelling and pushing and fighting. I got them off me, I leapt out of the car and I ran inside. And then anxiously, and for the rest of my time at that school, I went out of my way every day to make sure I never saw that professor on campus again. Yep, that's what I did. Speaking of how stories end, let's go back to the Blair and Janet story too. What happened next? As you recall, Blair had a terrible intuition that something awful was going to happen and the other roommates and parents were still like not taking it seriously, they were in denial, uh, just ignoring the signs, all of that. Well, Blair called her mom, Janet, if you recall, and told her that this feeling was happening and it was scarier than all the other feelings that she had. And they both thought, you know what, that is enough. That is it. Janet got in her car and she drove the 10 hours to Blair's house where they really quickly just packed all of Blair's stuff up and got her out of there. Now, very shortly after that, like within an hour, the boyfriend showed up with a gun. He bound his girlfriend's hands. Her name was Cheryl, by the way. He put her in his car He drove her to the parking lot of of the hotel where he was staying, and he was shouting at her and threatening her and flailing his gun around. Some bystanders heard and saw what was happening, and they started shouting, and then one of them called the police. And meanwhile, Cheryl was like, whoa. You know, her denial was quickly gone. She was able to fight and get out of the car. She ran to a nearby store and the employees there, some of them anyway, had seen what was going on. So they, they got her safe. And ultimately, this boyfriend ended up being indicted for a multiple crimes. So again, no victim blaming here. Cheryl did not 
asked to be kidnapped and threatened. Red flags were probably popping up for her too, but she didn't have the coping skills. If she did, she would have done something differently. She wasn't able to see reality as it presented itself to her because if she could have, she would have done something different. So she, she couldn't because of wherever she was in her life. And so that's why we don't blame victims. We're all doing the best that we can. In all likelihood, she was just doing what I did in the story that I told you. She was probably like minimizing and rationalizing and justifying and excusing all of her boyfriend's behavior. No one asks to be assaulted. Never. Never. For me, with denial, once we understand what it is, the question becomes, how do we ferret out the denial operating in our lives? How do we learn new coping skills? How do we stop turning to denial as a coping mechanism? How do we open up and keep tapping into our courage and resilience so we can lead a more empowered life? It can be a long slog, but the good news is that not only is this process doable and important to our safety, but it has all sorts of other benefits that affect every single part of our lives. Yes, Taking off the blinders directly impacts our level of safety as we walk through the world. Absolutely. And that is really, really, really important. And at the same time, as we notice, identify, and confront our denial, we learn who we are, what we really feel. We learn what our values are, what integrity means to us, how we want to live and thrive, what really matters to us, how to find our joy, and so much more all sorts of good stuff. So start therapy if you haven't already. Read books about denial. Read Brene Brown. Take deep breaths. Listen to podcasts. Talk with your friends. Write in your journal. Draw. Pay attention to what your body is telling you. Be curious. Be open to your feelings, even the ones, especially the ones that are so uncomfortable. That is where our learning and growing edge is going to be with denial. Paying attention to the feelings, the discomfort, and digging around and figuring it out. Be willing to look at all the ways you cope. All the ways. The healthy ways and the not-so-healthy ways. Be willing to grow. Be willing to look at yourself. The good, the bad, all of it. Be willing to be held accountable by people that you trust. Have friends who will tell you what they see, kindly, but who will be honest with you. The larger our community of healthy, emotionally mature, and self-aware individuals, the stronger and stronger we become and the more able we are to live grounded in reality rather than in stories that we tell ourselves about the things we wish were true. Know your resilience. Believe in your strength. Ask yourself where you have the most power in your life and start looking at the ways you can expand that and nurture it. And yes, of course, take an empowerment self-defense class. I put some links in this episode description so you can find an ESD class near you. Folks, denial is pervasive and it's totally worth the hard work of breaking through it. You've got this. I love you. Thank you for listening. It's affirmation time. 
This is how I end every self-defense class. It's kind of cheesy, but it's very cool, and this is how it works. We're going to do like a little call and response. If you can say this out loud, if you can repeat after me, do it, because it's important, I think, for you to hear your own voice. But if you can't, like if you're on a crowded subway or someplace where it's embarrassing, don't worry. You can also just say it inside your head. Okay, so I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it after me. I'm going to give you space to do that. And at the end, we're going to say yes. Here we go. Repeat after me. I am worth protecting. I love myself. I belong. I deserve to take up space on planet Earth. I am a strong and powerful person. Yes! Woohoo! And hey, as a wrap up, will you do me a favor? Will you do all the things that you do when there's a podcast? Like, will you tell your friends? Will you subscribe? Will you come back each week? Communicate with me? Review this podcast? Like, all those things to help get more bandwidth, help more people find out about it. That would be super awesome. Take a deep breath. You are amazing. Thank you for being with me. See you next time.